at my welcome to you this morning, and I do want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices, as it were, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Of all the uh, best-selling books that, uh, of the year 2006, perhaps the most surprising was Bart Ehrman's book, or Ehrman, I'm not sure exactly how you say his name, um, his book entitled Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. Ehrman's book was a, a surprising bestseller uh, because it is a book on the textual criticism of the Bible. Textual criticism. Uh, everybody just loves this theme, I'm sure. Uh, it is the science of comparing the earliest manuscripts of a text and then deducing from these comparisons which reading of the text is more likely to be the original. And given the nature of this theme and, and how unlikely it is probably for most of us to have that, a book like that on our nightstands, uh, it is truly amazing that over 100,000 copies of Ehrman's books sold in the first year and a half. Here's a sample of what he writes. Not only do we not have the originals, and he's speaking now of the original manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, not only do we not have the originals, we do not have the first copies of the originals. And what we have are copies made much later. These copies differ from each other in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there actually are. And the vast majority of these are centuries, these manuscripts, these are, they're centuries removed from the originals and different from them in thousands of ways. Therefore, what we have are only error-ridden copies. And that became a bestseller. Now, despite how misleading Ehrman's comments are, what makes this book very intriguing is that he is a credentialed scholar. I think he's a fairly high-profile professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He, um, he writes well at a popular level, so he's smart and he's articulate and he's interesting. He's also a self-proclaimed former fundamentalist. Ehrman professes to have had a born-again experience in high school, and then he attended Moody Bible Institute, and then Wheaton College, and then Princeton Seminary. Now, perhaps some of you are more familiar with the name Lee Strobel. Uh, Strobel's a Christian apologist. He's written popular works that defend the authority of Scripture and defend the person of Christ, a well-known book, The Case for Christ. And Strobel tells uh, the story of receiving an email from someone who had read, read Bart Ehrman's book. Here's, here's what the email said. Please help me. I've just read Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus. 
I've been raised in the church. I'm now 26 years old. This book has devastated my faith. I don't want to be kept in the dark. I want to really know what's going on in the Bible and what I should believe, even if it goes against what I've believed since I was a little boy. Now, why do I draw your attention to all that? Well, it's because John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, is an example of a text that Bart Ehrman says opened the floodgates of doubt leading to the conclusion that the Bible is merely a human book from beginning to end. So if you look at your Bible, and unless it's a King James version of the New Testament, you're going to notice that at the end of John chapter 7, verse 52, there are brackets, and there are the words, the earliest manuscripts do not include John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. And the reason that it says that, D.A. Carson writes, is that, quote, these verses, that is John 7, 53 through 8, 11, are absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts. They're also missing from the earliest forms of the Syriac and Coptic Gospels and from the old, oldest Latin manuscripts. All the early church fathers also omit this narrative. And if that's so, and if these verses have been then added to the Bible, and they should not have been added to the Bible, then, as Bart Ehrman would challenge us, how do we know that other things have not been added to the Bible as well? And loved ones, scholars today, including Bart Ehrman, know that there are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. So when text critics sit down, determine what the original text actually said. They've got thousands of texts from different places and different types and different forms and dating all the way back, contrary to what Ehrman says, to just decades from the original writing from which to determine the original wording. And what's really important for us to know, this is kind of the bottom line, is that the presence of thousands of manuscripts, albeit manuscripts with thousands of differences, slight differences, such as, you know, one a manuscript, the whole text is in capital letters, and another manuscript, all the, the text is in lowercase letters, and, and uh, some manuscripts, the punctuation uh, marks are present, and another manuscripts, the punctuation marks are not present. Uh, quite far from undermining our certainty regarding the authenticity of the original words, th this reality of thousands of manuscripts rather confirms and makes even more certain our assurance that what we have in our hands, on our laps, um, 
is the most genuine, the most authentic, and the most remarkably preserved piece of literature on the planet that has ever existed. No other ancient text comes even close. And further, according to the most careful and conservative textual critics, even where there does remain some uncertainty about which wording uh, in a particular text, which wording is original, which wording is not original, and they are very few, these uncertainties have absolutely no effect on the essential truths of the Christian message. What I want to assure you is that what we have here, we can be certain, is the very Word of God. Now, for those interested, we can point you in the direction of resources that will take you deeper into that. For now, we want to move on in the Gospel of John, and in spite of the fact that John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11 is most likely an authentic historical event since it is highly unlikely that it is in the original text of the Gospel of John, we're going to pass over it and we are going to look at John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. And so I want to invite you to follow along as I read God's holy and authoritative and life-giving word. And we read this book, as you know, like we read no other. Follow along. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. 
I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So they said to Him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have so much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Spirit of God, open our eyes. We're depending on you to open our eyes, to open our hearts, so that we might see the glory of Jesus. We might. Feel the reality of the glory of Jesus, that it would capture us so deeply and so fully that our, that our hearts, our lives, our souls would be overwhelmingly satisfied in all that Jesus is, all that He is, all that You are, Lord Jesus. So come, Holy Spirit, and accomplish this, this work of bringing honor and glory to the Son of God, to the Father, and to transforming our lives. For your sake, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. For probably many of us who've been born and raised in our kind of a Christian subculture, if you will, it, it's, it's a, there's an attractive notion uh, that says, you probably have heard it maybe articulated different ways, uh, we don't need doctrine, we just need Jesus. Uh, doctrine just divides, but Jesus unites. I, it may be because I'm a pastor that I'm more attentive to that or I maybe hear it more, but, but, but it's, it's kind of the language that that's out there. Oh, it's not about rituals or creeds or religion. We've been set free from all that and have come to recognize that it's all about Jesus. And to know Jesus, you know, it's this journey of trust and adventure. So we believe in following Jesus, but we're, we're so beyond religion and its dogmas and its programs and all the other human inventions that displace authentic spirituality. Maybe you've Maybe you've heard that kind of thing. Maybe you've 
thought those kinds of things or even said those kinds of things to yourself. We've come out of religion. We're back now to God. Some churches promote themselves that way. Um, And so it's a popular notion that a genuine spiritual relationship with Jesus doesn't have all this baggage of organization or official leadership like even pastors or, or perhaps especially theology. Theology, it just sort of clogs up your head and clogs up your heart, kind of like plaque in your arteries, keeping you from, from the reality and, the, and authentically knowing and worshiping God. My hope is that when you, uh, you, you come across that, that kind of notion, uh, you'd be discerning enough to say, yeah, I can, I can see some truth in that, but, you, but just wait a minute. Wait a minute. And, and my, my aim then in this sermon, as well as the aim of this text, I believe, is to persuade us that unless, and listen carefully, unless you believe certain particular truth, unless you believe specific propositional realities, listen, you will die in your sins. The main point of this passage is summed up in John chapter 8, verse 24, when Jesus says, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So loved ones, here's the thing. There are specific, particular things that we must believe or else we will die, we will perish unforgiven, unjustified, condemned, in our sins. Unless you believe that I am He, says Jesus, you will die in your sins. And so this is a, there's a lot of gravity to this text. A pretty intense situation going on here. And what is it then that we must believe? What does it mean when Jesus says you must believe that I am He? According to John 8, 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, certainly one truth that's necessary to believe is that Jesus is God. He is I am. Jesus and the Father are one. But in John 8, verse 24, Jesus is referring to something else and to something more, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. What does that mean? How is believing that Jesus is He different than believing that Jesus is I am? And I am He is different than simply I am in the sense that I am He is a reference to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a a very crucial, central part of 
of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. I am He is a reference to Jesus as the personal fulfillment of all the expectations of the Jewish people. And therefore, it's not like one over against the other. It's necessary to believe, to accept, to embrace the truth that Jesus is I am, that He is God, to believe in the incarnation. However, in the context of John 8, verses 12 to 30, Jesus is referring specifically and particularly to the necessity of believing in Him as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament expectation regarding the Messiah. As the Scripture has said, Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope and the expectation of all that this feast of tabernacles looked forward to. And therefore, Jesus embodies thousands of years of doctrinal expectation. Certainly, Jesus is the I am who I am of Genesis 3.14, or Exodus 3.14, excuse me. But He is more. The Messiah you've been waiting for, I am He. And therefore, John 8.24 is a statement that we all need to recognize and acknowledge and must inform the perspective, our perspective, and confront the spirit of the age in which we live. Namely, that there are certain specific, particular truths about Jesus as the Messiah that we must take hold of. We must embrace. We must believe or else. He's just nothing more than a mantra, right? Listen, here, this is the main thing. And here's why it's so important. A contentless Christ does not save. We're not saved by merely having warm feelings and a positive disposition about the word Jesus. John 8, 24 again. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. This last week... Um, Laurie and I celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary, and uh, some of you know my wife, and uh, some of you don't, so I could say things like, you know, oh man, she is amazing, she's wonderful, she's awesome, she's the best, she's number one, I can't imagine being married to anybody else, and you could respond with, wow, you know, it sounds like I'd really like to, I'd like to get to know her. Can you tell me more? And I'd say, well, you know, I, I'm not really into statements and truth claims. Uh, I'm all about relationship. Uh, and you say, well, yeah, but, you know, I, I want to know her. I, I want to really know her. But what does she look like? What's she interested in? What's she passionate about? What's her story? What sets her apart? What makes her so special to you? And I go, well, I'm not into doctrine and propositions. She's not my religion. All that matters is that I feel joy and peace when I'm with her. And friends, if that's all that matters, you can't possibly know my wife. I mean, you wouldn't even spot her in the room. 
You need to know something. And knowing Christ is similar to know Christ, to follow Christ, to believe in Christ, to belong to Christ. Well, it's certainly more than being convinced about right and accurate truth about him, but it is not less. If you cannot say anything about this Christ or make some propositional statement regarding his nature, regarding his person, regarding where he came from, regarding his mission and purpose, regarding his work, then, friends, how can we possibly say that we know him? All you've got is some subjective feeling in your heart, or not, or some mantra that you repeat. Jesus is awesome. John 8.24 is not a mantra. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That's why I believe Jesus refers specifically to sin in verse 21 in the singular. It's because there's a, there's a specific sin that Jesus has in mind. And that specific sin is, in the narrative of John 8, the sin of unbelief. Unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah. Failure to believe in Jesus and recognize Him as the Christ. This is the specific sin that's being addressed in John chapter 8. And this sin of unbelief in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, is the sin unless repented of, leaves one condemned in their sins. And so if there's, if there's only one application that you take away from this sermon, here it is. We must not think that we can expect to simply cruise our way into heaven because we went to church now and then, or a lot, or we were nice, really nice, or things felt right, or, or didn't feel wrong. The central question on the last day will be, what have you done with this Jesus? This Jesus. And John 8, 12 to 30 tells us four things about this Jesus. Four things we must recognize. Four things we must trust. Four things about Jesus of which we must take hold. And the first is this. First and most obvious is that Jesus is the light of the world. Ryan drew attention last couple weeks regarding the context here. The situation is the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. It's the Feast of Booths, also known as the festival of water and light. So notice again verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a fulfillment of a long-held Prophetic expectation that goes all the way back to Zechariah chapter 14, which said, a day is coming for the Lord, Zechariah 14, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. 
And on that day, the Lord will be one, and His name one, and then everyone shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths or tabernacles. These statements are more than spiritual platitudes. They're more than metaphors, right? He's not claiming to be like light, kind of like the light of the world, or I can show you the light of the world, or I could teach you and explain something to you about the light of the world, or here, let me affirm the truth that you already know about the light of the world. What made Jesus' statement so audacious, so offensive, is that he's saying, I am the fulfillment of Zechariah 14. I am the light of the world. I am He. And if you follow this, Jesus, you will not walk around in darkness or the fog of sin. You won't be wandering around saying, where am I? Where am I going? Why am I here? Is God for me? Does God have a plan or purpose for me? Am I forgiven? Is there any hope? What's going to happen to me on the last day? And as audacious and offensive as it was for some to hear Jesus' words, they did land effectually on many. And according to verse 30, it says, they believed. And for those who believed, the darkness lifted. And for those who believe, the rivers of living water began to flow. And the darkness will lift and the living water will flow for you as well. Second thing we must accept and believe and trust about Jesus is that He was sent by the Father. In response to Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, the Pharisees, they aim to silence Him. Their aim is to condemn Him. And they aim to do so by appealing to the law. So in verse 13 it says, So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Therefore your testimony is not true. And and the reason they said that is because according to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, a valid testimony required at least two witnesses. And the Pharisees are discounting Jesus' testimony regarding Himself being the light of the world because there's nobody else around to corroborate what He's saying. There's no second witness. Okay, you can say that. Where's the other guy? And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is still true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. It's true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you'd know my Father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So one of the most significant themes in the entire gospel of, of John is this inseparable connection between God the Father 
and God the Son. Jesus is not just the way to the Father. Jesus and the Father are one. You cannot have the one without the other. Jesus and the Father receive the same worship. They share the same purpose. They give the same witness. They came from the same place. John Calvin writes, comments on this, on John 8, 19. God, in Christ, condescended to the mean condition of men so as to stretch out His hand. So God's stretching out His hand in the very person of Jesus. And do not those who reject God when He thus approaches them deserve to be excluded from heaven? So if you're rejecting Jesus, you're rejecting God. Let us know that the same thing is spoken to us all, for whoever aspires to know God and does not begin with Christ, must wander as it were in a labyrinth, like in a maze. It's not without good reason that Christ is called the image of the Father. And so there are many who go through this life wandering as in a labyrinth. It's like they're in a maze, trying to find their authentic self. And then when they think they've found their authentic self and peace with that, then they realize later that that's not so fulfilling after all. And then they move on to some other form of of spirituality. And then that ends up being kind of vague and blurry. And then, you know, they'll hit up Netflix and binge out on old reruns of Touched by an Angel just to kind of get this warm feeling that they used to have. and I mean, it's just one dead end upon another dead end upon another dead end. It's just this maze. It's a labyrinth until they find Christ. Or perhaps more accurately, Christ finds you. Loved ones, none of us will ever find our way out of that maze Until Jesus comes and takes us by the hand and says, let me show you the way. I'm the way. I and the Father are one. It's interesting, John highlights in verse 20 that all of this happened in the treasury. He does so, I believe, to point out that what, what happened here happened in a real busy place. A lot of traffic. Lots of people. It was public. It wasn't private. It wasn't done in some corner out of the way where nobody knew what was going on. And, and, and what's significant about that is that though there were many in that place, in that moment, that wanted to take Jesus out right there, right then, John says his hour, the reason that they couldn't take him out at that moment was that his hour had not yet come. That is, everything was is on God's timetable. Everything is according to God's providential plan. Everything is going according to the fulfillment of God's purpose. Just one more indication that Jesus and the Father are co-operating together in this mission. Jesus, God's representative, His image, His person, present. He is the light of the world sent by the Father. Thirdly, Jesus is not of this world. 
according to verses 21 to 23, Jesus lays out this contrast between himself and the Jewish leaders. They're from below, Jesus is from above. And what what Jesus is describing is, is this contrast between the realm of heaven, the realm of this fallen world, the values of, of heaven and the values of this fallen world, the perspective of heaven and the perspective of a fallen world. Look at verse 21 again. So he said to them, again, I'm going away. And you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? And now, of course, they're, they're a little off and there's, there's speculations going on here. But, but, you know, he was, in fact, referring to his laying down his own life. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. And because of those different perspectives, they see things differently. In verse 12, Jesus says, whoever follows me. That sounds like an invitation, right? Follow me. Here he's saying, you're going to seek me. But then he says twice, where I'm going, you cannot come. Which is it? Come or don't come? Can or no can? One of the first steps in following Jesus is recognizing that he may not be who we thought he was. And we may not be the sort of people that we think we are. There's different frameworks for looking at reality, different frameworks of looking at Jesus and understanding him, different frameworks through which we look at ourselves. He didn't come with the big fanfare and, uh, you know, the army and all that people had hoped for. Rather, he came to suffer and to die. To suffer and to die for sinners. And for that reason, they just didn't recognize him. They didn't see glory. They didn't see what they were looking for. And loved ones will not recognize Him and we will not follow Him until we own up to the truth that He came in humility and condescension as a suffering servant. Values radically different. Fulfilling a purpose radically different from heaven. Not the way this world operates. And so the first step in following Jesus is realizing and owning up to how, how far we really are from Jesus. He, he's not of this world. He doesn't operate the way we operate. He was sent by the Father. He's the light of the world. And finally, Jesus will judge the world. How are we to make sense of Jesus' statement? For instance, in verse 15, I judge no one. Does that mean I don't judge people? But yet then in verse 16, yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. 
And then verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge. Which is it? Judge, not judge. Lots of judge, no judge. I I believe Jesus' point is, is this. I judge no one the way you judge. You judge people according to the flesh. I don't judge people according to the flesh. I I don't mark people. I don't pigeonhole people the way you do. Namely on the basis of superficial appearances or subjective or false criteria. Jesus doesn't judge on the basis of skin color or ethnicity or age or accent or height or fitness or how dependent they are or whether they are inside or outside the womb, or by the merits of their achievements. Don't judge that way. Jesus doesn't judge that way. But that doesn't mean that Jesus does not judge in any way. According to verse 16, Jesus does judge, and He judges rightly. And according to verse 26, Jesus affirms His role as the coming and ultimate judge. Father didn't send Him into the world to condemn the world the way the world condemns itself. But by virtue of the nature of His ministry and mission, there's going to be division. Just look at what's going on here in John chapter 8. There is division. People are evaluating Him according to the flesh. And there's division. And because of the division, there will be inevitably salvation for some and condemnation for others. And though according to verse 27, there were many who did not recognize Jesus for who He was, nor is he, 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 he neither was nor is up for election. He is king, whether or not anyone does or doesn't recognize him as such. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And the basis of his judgment will be, according to John 8.24, unless you believe that I am he, light of the world, Sent from the Father. Not oriented, not about what this world is about. And the coming judge. Unless you believe that I am He. That He. You will die in your sins. Will you take Jesus for all that He is. Light for you in this dark world. Sent by the Father not of this world and its values, and as the coming judge of the living and the dead.